welcome to Season 2 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held here on Murramurang Country in the Milton Mollymook, Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales South Coast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2021. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month we feature some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and fabulous book giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2021. May I welcome all of you to this very exciting um, session at StoryFest. I have trouble taking my glasses on and off, that's all right, we'll work that out as well. Um, and particularly, may I welcome the absolutely fabulous, inspirational... <laughs> last of the compassionate, sensible, intelligent, straight-talking politicians. Tanya Plisek. Um, we are going to be discussing Tanya's uh, anthology that she has edited with many fine upstanding people with really interesting ideas called Upturn, A Better Normal After COVID-19. But before we get to that, I do want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Murramurang people of the Yuan Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to acknowledge that this has always been and will always be Aboriginal land. And indeed, there's quite a lot about uh, Indigenous First Nations people's um, future normal in the book as well, which we will get to, um, I'm sure. But the first question is the obvious one, Tanya. Why did you want to do the book? <laughs> did you turn it on? <laughs> we made her people stay behind. You can tell. I'm really no good in the wild on my own. <laughs> <laughs> and oh my God, this is wild. Uh, so uh, uh, there were two reasons really I wrote it. The first was we weren't allowed out much in 2020, so I needed a project. Uh, and the second one was because I really, I was calling a lot of people. The, the people in the book are basically just people I like and respect. And I was ringing them saying, wow, things are really crazy this year. What do you think will happen afterwards? Um, and and I, I felt like the, pri the privilege I had in being able to ring up someone like June Oscar, um, the Race Discrimination Commissioner and say, June, what's happening with your people? She, she was up in Fitzroy Crossing. Uh, she went back to her country uh, during COVID-19 because it felt like the safest place for her to be. Um, being able to ring someone like her or Paul Torzillo, who's a, um, a respiratory specialist at one of my local hospitals, and a, like you know, Sharon Lewin, world famous um, virus researcher. Being able to ring them and say, "This is a really crazy time. What do you think it means?" for now and for the future. I wanted to be able to share that privilege as well. I thought it's not fair that I get to ring these people and have these conversations and I don't get to share them. And so I just um, contacted 30 of my closest friends and said, can you write a short chapter about what COVID-19 means, um, what it will change? What are the good things that we can take out of this period of enormous dislocation? 
uh, and what are the things that we need to watch out for. And the idea was to have quite different voices writing about a whole range of different issues. So there's obviously quite a lot in there about health, about the economy, about work, about wages. But we've also, for example, got Gabby Chan in there talking about agriculture. So immediately after COVID-19 lockdown started, there was a whole lot of panic buying of food and the National Farmers Federation, Fiona Simpson's in there from the National Farmers Federation as well. Fiona and Gabby were talking about how agriculture has served us in, in this country and then Gabby Chan talks about how it's not going to keep serving us if we don't look after our farmers and the environment in which uh, our things are grown. Um, so it's, I don't know, it's, it's just the things I'm interested in really, the questions I wanted to answer for myself and then the answers that I wanted to share with people. You touched there on there one of the great contradictions I think of, um, well, I was going to say of our time, but I think it's specific to Australia, where we have a government currently who did, and governments all around Australia as well, state and federal, pay attention to the science and the scientists about COVID-19 and responded pretty quickly and largely, certainly in the States, quite effectively. We can have a little discussion about how effective our federal government was with the few things they were charged with later. But <laughs> I'm not biased. What are you saying? Um, what are you implying? Um, but the great glaring contradiction is still, and I mean, you've got Ross Garno in the book talking about this, that we won't, that our governments particularly our federal government, the states seem to be actually taking the lead now, but our federal government won't pay attention to the science and the scientist when it comes to what is a much greater existential threat even than yeah. COVID-19. What's going on there? You see these guys all the time <laughs> across know. the other side. What's wrong with them? I, on, I honestly cannot, I cannot answer why... Like the, the, the best things about our COVID-19 response in Australia is because we listen to our health advisors and our scientists. Uh, you know, everyone's an epidemiologist today. We listen to the experts and then we followed their advice. Everything that went right is because we listened to the experts and followed their advice. And in the areas where we haven't done that, like in aged care, uh, in quarantine, in the rollout of the vaccination program, where we've put political decision-making ahead of the advice of the experts, we've stuffed it up. So you would think that um, the government would understand that with a, in many ways, a larger existential crisis than COVID-19, climate change, that listening to the experts and following their advice might be a good approach. They are determined not to. And the only thing I can put it down to is the fact that the impact of climate change is much slower than the impact of the spread of a virus like this. And so they won't be around to deal with the consequences that our kids and our grandkids will face. Um, I, I think they're counting on, on people being obsessed with the short term and not thinking about the long term. I, I, I really liked, uh, Ross Garno's got a piece in the book that is a sort of contraction of what he's written for Superpower and his other great book, which came out more recently called Reset, which looks at energy policy and economic policy post-COVID-19. Um, he, he's saying, why aren't we taking the opportunities that are offered by changing our economy, the global economy changing to a net zero um, emissions by 2050? We are one of the best positioned countries on the planet to make this a, an economic opportunity instead of an economic cost. Uh, and I think, um, you know, if only we had a government that was prepared to do that. Mm. Because I think that is a theme that runs throughout the book, that the threat of climate change is still there. And indeed, I've heard it um, posited that COVID-19 is in itself an effect of climate change because um, 
as more and more creatures have to live closer and closer to human beings because we're destroying their habitats, so they're coming into um, suburban and country town areas, etc., etc., living much closer with people, the likelihood of diseases jumping species increases, the risk increases. So that even COVID-19, it is argued by some, is um, a result of our depredation of um, the climate. And what's great about the chapters by Gabriel Chan and also by Fiona Simpson is this idea that agriculture, far from being the devil that it's often painted, actually not only can become part of the solution, but is actively becoming part of the solution right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you leave out the um, changing climate and the... Uh, I mean, there are, are obvious health effects with people living through extreme temperatures, but also things like um, mosquito-borne diseases moving further south into what used to be... No, there's a whole yeah. bunch of that yeah. stuff, right? Um, it, it, even... Um, you know, the National Farmers Federation, BHP, Qantas, our biggest companies, our biggest energy emitters, our biggest, like everybody has signed up to zero net emissions by 2050, except our federal government. So it, it's not even that we, it, there's nothing in the book that is particularly radical when it comes to taking action on climate change. It's the whole world has moved to this position, except for our federal government. All the state governments, as you point out, conservative state governments, <sighs> sigh. <laughs> yes, I know. It's, it, it must be, I mean, it's incredibly frustrating for, I think, many of us in the Australian public, but it must be even more frustrating to sit in the parliament and listen to spurious nonsense about what is such pressing issue and it's even pressing from the point of view, I mean, um, I don't think it's mentioned in the book but I may be wrong. Um, oh yes, I think it is by Gareth Evans in the final chapter, the idea of um, sanctions being placed yeah. on Australia uh, by Europe. I mean, we've already got them from China, well done ScoMo. Now, you know, we're facing European, uh, the European market putting sanctions on Australia as well. So even from just a sheer, I don't give a stuff about the climate but I'm concerned about the economy perspective. It seems yeah. like foolish policy. Well, um, so there's great economic opportunities in moving to lower cost and cleaner energy, which is what solar and wind with um, upgraded transmission and storage amount to. Hydro, all that. Yeah. We also have this incredible opportunity um, with hydrogen that Ross Garno talks about in, in this book and, um, and in Superpower and in Reset. We have all these opportunities uh, where we'll have trading partners that want low emissions steel, low emissions aluminium, low emissions agricultural products, low emissions, did I say steel already? Mm. You know, the low, low emissions cement uh, and chemical manufacture. It's not, it, it, it's not, sexy but it is so important to our prosperity as a nation and we're on the cusp of being able to grasp this opportunity create jobs for people uh, improve our trading position as a trading nation and we're not we're turning our back on these opportunities because the government has decided their short-term politics in playing to people's fear about um, the, the change that is involved in grasping these opportunities. It's so short-sighted, it drives me crazy um, because it's, it's deliberately myopic. It's not, that, it's not that they couldn't understand the opportunities or invest in them if they wanted to. They have decided that there's short-term political benefit in not doing it. Yeah, so it's entirely self-interested. It's interesting you mentioned fear because I think that um, if you were going to ask what kind of, uh, are we in a hope-dominant um, society at the moment or a fear-dominant society at the moment, I mean, what would your answer be? I, I, th I do think there's both. And I think it's the challenge of political leadership to grasp people's hope and optimism and channel that into voting for change and voting for something better. Remember Sarah Palin um, 
having a go at Barack Obama. How's that Hopi Changey thing working out for you? <laughs> well, worked a, out well. A, actually, it did work out pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- th- you can make... It, politics is hard slog in lots of ways. You know, it's often three steps forward, two steps back. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's more steps back than forward. It, it is... Change is, is difficult and... Um, you, you know, you spend your lifetime and you look back and you go, well, I'm ha- happy about those things, but there's all this stuff that I didn't get done. But unless you, unless you have a vision, unless you actually have a place that you want to take the country, unless you're clear about the changes and improvements that you want to see, you're never going to get there. And this, um, I'm, only, I'm only looking to the next news poll cycle that we're trapped in now is never going to take us forward as a nation. Like one of the things about COVID-19 is that it it showed us the best of what we've got. It showed us our strong public health system. It showed us that we've got amazing scientists who uh, were part of the global effort to discover the genetic sequence of the virus and to replicate it um, so that we could, um, ex- you know, do what we needed to do to find out about um, cures and, and vaccines and so on. We're at the forefront of so much. We have so much capacity. We have the capacity to look after each other. We increased unemployment benefits. We put in JobKeeper. Um, but we also, like, we were checking in on our neighbours. Uh, I, I think, you know, there's more whops, WhatsApp group, um, you know, ch- your street... Everybody knows everybody even more than they did before COVID-19 because we were looking out for each other. People for the most part, wanted to do the right thing. They were prepared to stay home, wear masks, do everything they were told would help look after not only their own health. I think most people were more concerned about the vulnerable people in their family, their elderly parents, whatever. So much capacity, so wasted if we're just going to go back to how things were before with high unemployment, high underemployment, stagnant wages, growth, increasing inequality, um, you know, I know how edu- uh, interested you are, Jane, in schools, in education. Um, we don't want a bigger educational gap after COVID-19, but that's how we're, that's that's, how that's we're headed that, well, if it, we it, don't grasp mm. the opportunity for change. And really the book is about the capacity that we showed, what we showed of ourselves as a nation, how great we can be at times of hardship Let's not waste it. That's the whole point, right? Let's not waste it. It's very interesting you say that because one of the things I think was so fascinating about watching the Australian response to things like mask wearing, to things like staying indoors when we were all locked down and, of course, poor old Melbourne's had to do it time and time again. Um, at the moment in New South Wales, we're all on tenterhooks a bit. Um, <coughs> but we did it. We followed yeah. the rules. And we didn't see the kind of bizarre... Um, behaviour, for example, in America, where people decided that mask wearing and indeed the whole COVID-19 thing was another form of conspiracy um, to control the population, we actually showed that we still in this country, and it surprised me to some extent, and it actually, it did encourage me, that we do actually have trust Mm. still in our leaders. I mean, maybe it surprised me because mine was a little low, but... It seems the rest of Australia is much more generous than I am. That seems... I mean, Rebecca Huntley talks a lot about the community response and how that, as you were just saying, Mm. is something to grasp. But the worrying thing is, I think, uh, with Tom... I always have trouble with his last name. Sutpomasan, Tim Sutpomasan. Tim. Call him Tom. I have trouble with his name, which is really (laughs) simple to say as well. Good on you, Jane. You're going well. Um, um, Now my microphone's going in protest. I don't blame it. Um, Multiculturalism is something I think that is... I'm not as hopeful about. That showed a very negative side, I think, of some Australian communities. COVID, particularly around this idea of the China virus and um, all that kind of stuff. That yeah, it, look, it doesn't help if you've got the um, you know president of the uh, our um, you know world's most powerful mm. democracy saying that calling it the China virus and so China, on. China virus. Um, 
yeah, I, I'm not saying it in public. But I think the point you make about Australia still having a bit more trust uh, is a really important one, but it's not a guarantee. So young people, there's a, there's a bit of um, research that I look at in the book that says that that young people who go through a period like a big public health emergency now may experience lowered trust in government for years afterwards. And it's one of the reasons is that it's young people who bear the economic consequences of all the, the, the frankly, bastardry that's aimed at um, younger generations by governments at the moment. So think about young people today there's a bunch of kids who were learning remotely for some states it was only days, some states it was months. So many have fallen behind. Kids who are marginally engaged at school have disengaged completely. Um, some kids did fine during this period. I don't want to be completely negative about it, but the, the federal government set aside some money to spend to help kids catch up um, by almost a, a well, the, the next budget, uh, so eight months after the money was set aside, they hadn't spent any of it. Um, Given a few billions to private schools, though. Yeah, they, they gave money to Catholic and independent schools for hand washing and, and other upgrades that they didn't give to public schools. That's another um, inexplicable division. But at, at the same time, so you've got kids, even before COVID-19, we had high youth unemployment, high underemployment, um, we've got a demographic bubble from the Costello baby boom years that are just about to hit university. Why would you at this period, this time, why would you at this time actually double the cost of a whole lot of university degrees? Thousands of degrees have gone up to get the cost now for a three year bachelor degree with an honours year is $58,000. So I reckon there's probably people in the in the audience who were Whitlam generation who never would have gone to university, but for Gough Whitlam opening up our universities. Yeah, when um, when when we were last in government, we we took the you know population trajectory growth of, of universities and added 190,000 extra places by uncapping university places. So we saw big increases in first in family, kids from regional remote communities, Aboriginal kids, kids with disability, uh, and kids from non-English speaking backgrounds. Uh, this government's actually gone the opposite way. So during a pandemic, they've made it harder and more expensive to go to university and thousands of university staff have lost their jobs because while casinos got JobKeeper, universities didn't. So we know about 17,000 people lost their jobs. And, and what they're trying to do is say, oh, well, um, uh, too many people have gone to university. You can't find a tradesperson now. We want more people studying at TAFE, but they've also cut TAFE cut funding TAFE. as well. <laughs> and there's 140,000 fewer apprentices and trainees today than when the Liberals came to office. So, so the, the short version of this is, why would young people have faith in, at, a, at a time like this? Housing prices are becoming completely out of reach for a generation of young people. It's harder to get a university education. It's harder to get an apprenticeship. Um, wages for young people uh, in particular, uh, you know, have, have a look at the sort of jobs that we're channeling young Australians into. Um, apparently, if you've got a push bike and an app on your phone, you're an independent contractor. Uh, so kids are earning as little as $10 an hour delivery riding and... Uh, we are walking away from the sort of security that I had growing up and that certainly my parents had when they were forming a family and buying a house and putting down roots and it's no wonder that this generation are, are anxious, they're nervous about what the future holds and that their trust in government and democracy is lower and you put on top of that the you know weird stuff they read on the internet, all this QAnon, the world's run by you know, a cabal of devil-worshipping, um, blood-drinking pedophiles. 
Um, and it, 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 no, that's seriously what they believe, the QAnon people. Like, it's nuts, mm. right? That, uh, but this is widespread nuts stuff that's entering our public consciousness and has as much um, believability for, for lots of people as what they're reading in the Australian or the Sydney Morning Herald. Like, well, we're entering that is accurate. into very uncertain... <laughs> Um, certainly of publications. Um, it's very interesting about the, um, it, the the blood drinking and you know pedophilia stuff. It struck me when I watched that Four Corners. This is ancient stuff. This is it's got a name. It's called the Blood Bible, and it was yeah. used to justify pogroms. Anti-Semitic. No, it's not my fault. To technology. I can't do anything about it. Um, I'll just soldier on. The, it, the, um, it's called the blood libel and it is behind many of the most and savagest moments in human history, particularly against Jewish people. And this, I think, is worth pointing out because people think, oh, it's just nonsense. But this has led to blood in the streets in yeah. past times. And it was certainly part of Nazism, uh, this appalling beliefs. Um, so it's, it's, it's weird how it's raised its head again, almost exactly the same language. Um, and, and, and the attack on the, the US Capitol was, was from people who believed that they were being called to defend the world against this stuff. It's, it is dangerous. It, it, it's, it's not as funny as it at first seems. Yeah. Um, but you talk about young people and what's happened to them and absolutely um, I, I can see why there's an exponential rise in mental health issues in the young. It's not because they're crazy, it's cause actually because they're sane and they're looking at the yeah. world and what their future might hold. But it's also, and you have a chapter from Ray Cooper and um, uh, Sarah Moulton in the book about the effect on women because of those university places that were lost in 2020, 86,000 of them were women, the, a, a huge fall in the number of girls who were going to university. And there was a fall in the number of boys, but half as great. Um, and also uh, the fact that this government uh, encouraged really people to dip into their super, and that has had such a disproportionate effect on women and their long-time financial security, because we know already that um, this generation of older women, my generation, are the fastest growing group amongst the homeless. Um, the uh, jobs lost were greater for women. The hours of work lost were greater for women. The increase in domestic responsibilities were greater for women. We know that uh, spending time in lockdown was absolutely deadly dangerous for a lot of women in abusive relationships. Um, the, the often crises impact more on men in the past. For example, the GFC did had a greater impact on men's uh, opportunities than women's. But COVID has been peculiar in that it has had a particularly detrimental effect on the progress of women. I'd love you to talk a little bit about that. Yes, uh, there's a couple of great chapters in there um, about uh, about women. There's both the Ray, Ray Cooper and Sarah Masseri chapter, but also another one by Annie O'Rourke who talks about um, how a lot of uh, economic activity in recent years has been women starting their own, usually pretty small, medium-sized businesses, including in regional communities. The decentralisation push she saw as a great opportunity for women's businesses. Um, and uh, and uh, Annabel Crabb also has a chapter yes. in there where she's talking about the gender di gender life. division of labour mm -hmm. uh, and how um, you know working from home can be a great opportunity for women pursuing uh, their careers, but it's not going to be if they're doing everything they used to do in the office at home plus doing everything they had to do at home, at home, and their um, partners aren't picking up some of the increased domestic workload. Look, you're, you're right, Jane. I mean, the, the COVID-19 pandemic saw more women lose jobs, more women lose hours, and less of the public support, um, like, To take childcare workers off job uh, seeker as the first group was just, to my mind, a, a, a deliberate slap to yeah. working women, both those working in childcare and those who use the services of childcare so they can work. The message could not have been clearer. Yes, I'm, I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure, 
how you could possibly begin to explain the logic of that to make childcare briefly free mm. and then stop it being free and take the workforce off uh, off JobKeeper just absolutely made no sense. Um, look, I, I think this government has had a problem for years with understanding the economy and our society from the perspective of women. And part of the reason for that is because um, only about a quarter of their parliamentarians are female. And I think that th that before you get to a critical mass of female representation, as a woman, if you're the, always the one saying, well, how does this affect women? You, you get pigeonholed, you get, um, you know, shuffled onto the, the slow track career-wise. So there becomes a sort of institutional pressure not to be the one always raising the, the so-called women's issues. Uh, in contrast, about half of our parliamentarians are women and um, it, so it's not always down to one or two people to be raising the issues. You've got people sitting around the decision-making table saying, no, that's a dumb thing to do because you haven't thought about it from this perspective. Um, and I think the government, uh, after the just appalling stories came out about um, Brittany Higgins and, uh, and more broadly about sexual harassment in Parliament House as a workplace a few months ago, I think... Uh, Scott Morrison sort of realised that they had a p political problem, women's problem, and <laughs> now there's uh, about four different um, ministers who We've got a all prime have minister for women. <laughs> We've got a prime minister for women. Uh, nice for, he admitted he'd never been that. Yeah. Um, w uh, w well, my favourite was when Tony Abbott was the minister for women. That was oh, the yeah, best. Oh, yeah, that was great. Ah, <laughs> oh, the good old days. Um, he, uh, but it, like it's, it's good that they've realised there's a problem and I hope that it leads them to take some actual concrete action. But it, it's again that sort of, oh, we've got a news poll in two weeks, we better do something to fix this stuff up. Shut the ladies it's up. Not, it's not a long-term change. Like we started our, our first affirmative action rule changes were at the 1994, the, when I say our, I mean the Labor Party, mm. um, first affirmative action rule changes were in 1994 at a conference in Hobart that I remember vividly. And I remember that there were plenty of men in the Labor Party in those days saying it's outrageous, we should, you know, it should all be based on merit. And like, Honestly, truly, if decisions are based on merit, then half the people in the room will already be women. Mm. Um, so, um, I, you know, I, I hope that I hope this is an opportunity for the government to actually lift its game with some of this stuff. What's interesting is when you said suddenly women became a political problem particularly around the March for Justice. Yep. And the fact that they're standing in the polls with women remains, it fell and it remains low. Men, on the other hand, just <laughs> pointing it out, guys, have not responded as well. But women have, by making themselves into a political issue, they have, in fact, pressured this government into doing something about it. Now, whether... Yeah. I mean, I do like Albo's line about all photo-op, no follow-up. Whether yeah. there's actually any follow-up remains to be seen. But surely that's a model for yeah. young people, for um, uh, everyone who feels that they are being uh, ignored. Um, uh, the universities, the sco public schools, etc., etc., who feel that they haven't had a fair deal to look at make yourself into a political problem mm. because this, that as you point out I think quite correctly that's what this government responds to otherwise it doesn't do anything justice doesn't cut it fairness doesn't cut it trouble for them cuts it yep <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so surprised you agree <laughs> but thinking about post-covid yep. I mean this book is um, designed to be positive, to give us a view of how much better our world could be if we grasped all the opportunities that you enumerated before. But what 
And I mean, I would love to see all of that happen, but I don't know, getting old. Um, like you look back on a lifetime of activism. Yes, there are a few things I think are better, but there's so much that we don't seem to have made a dent on. So just realistically, mm. what do you think? And, and also, when are we going to be post-COVID? I mean, we yeah. keep talking about it as if it's going to be over any minute now, yeah. but I'm not seeing a lot of sign of that. Yeah. Look, I think the two most important things we need to do are um, sort out the vaccination program uh, and um, quarantine. They're the, the two things the federal government really needs to do. And uh, I, I, you know, fingers crossed they're going to get that sorted soon because we can't afford another lockdown like in Victoria. We're now in New South Wales, we've got this eastern suburbs cluster and I don't want to have another lockdown here either. So we've got to get vaccination right. Um, we've got to get, um, and we've got to get uh, quarantine right. We've still got 35, 40,000 Australians stuck overseas. And I can tell you, um, we are dealing with constituents all the time who've got a family member trapped overseas or, uh, you know, some desperate, horrible circumstance. I had one person contact me who had bought five tickets for her daughter to try and get home from India. Um, she, she just stopped there on her way to Europe. She was, she, this, um, it's not a really relevant story, but it's just a kind of insight into the heartbreaking stories. This woman had nursed her husband to his death and she thought, oh, I'm just going to have a holiday, my first holiday in five years because I've been full-time nursing this person. Um, she stopped in India for a, a yoga retreat on her way to Paris, got stuck in India, like mm. left in February. So before we really knew that it was a problem, five tickets her mum had tried to get a, um, to get home to Australia, flights cancelled at the last minute. So woman on her own, couldn't, I mean, you can just, pay. I had another one who got a job in Germany, landed, job was cancelled, apartment was cancelled, she'd sold everything here, no money coming in, couldn't get home, no way to support herself because the job wasn't there anymore. It's awful stuff. Um, we've got to get that sorted. But really to, to get Australia back on its feet, they're, they're kind of just jobs, right? What do we need as a, as a program, a vision? Uh, we, we need secure work with rising pay. We've had eight years of flatlining wages and we need go back to secure work, not, not just jobs where people don't know what they're going to be earning from week to week. Um, that means that we need to capture the, the benefits of cheaper, cleaner energy and use it to power the industries that we should have here that are based on what we do particularly well, and that includes using our science and innovation, our discovery, our universities, our researchers to create new jobs for Australians, new industries for Australians. Uh, of course, we've got to get um, climate change and, and energy right because we're going to be, um, we're going to have no one to trade with if we if we don't. We're also going to burn to a crisp. We're going to we're going to burn to a crisp. Uh, but if if that doesn't convince people, like, I know. if that doesn't convince people, if we're only talking to them about their self interest, surely that is enough self interest. The world's not going to want to trade with us if we don't. Uh, and uh, I just, you know. When we were kids growing up, we didn't worry about stuff. We, my dad had a secure job, it wasn't much money, but it was regular, right? We didn't worry. Our kids today, they've got so much to worry about. We're, we're pushing them into this insecure world. And we tell know. them that everything don't they get or don't get is entirely their own fault. Yeah. So we don't take into account, and this to me is morally reprehensible, we don't take into account the very different circumstances that people arrive into. You know, the, the greatest risk any of us ever take in this life is to be born because we have absolutely no idea the circumstances into which we're going to arrive. Some of us arrive into fortunate circumstances, some of us arrive in a Uyghur, you know, re detention camp in mm. um, China. I mean, mm. appalling. Mm. And yet, 
our current philosophy at the basis of our government is that if you're poor, it's because you're an asshole, a, a waster, a slacker, you're undeserving. It, we, the Victorians had the deserving poor and the undeserving poor, but we're worse. We have the deserving rich and the undeserving poor. And so any young person who's born into, you know, mm. more difficult circumstances, no wonder they feel this society holds nothing for them. And, and yet we've got, we've got the antidote at our fingertips because we know um, the, the biggest difference we can make in the life of an individual is to give them a great education. And that starts... Regardless of who their parents are. Well, absolutely. But it, it starts with working with families who are their child's first educators. And we've got fantastic early childhood programs like the Hippie Program that um, the Brotherhood of St Lawrence runs that is about teaching... Um, parents to be confident in playing with their children. If nobody's played with you as a child, you don't know how to play with your children. Teaching through play um, in those early years. And then early childhood education and care. Uh, you know, it's such an opportunity to change lives and yet we pay the people who do it $23 an hour. Uh, Education, I know, Jane, such a passion of yours, making sure that every child in every school, no matter where they are, no matter their family background, gets the personal attention they need to thrive. Uh, TAFE, instead of cutting funding, we should be increasing funding to TAFE. Um, and university. These two things aren't in competition. If you're building a bridge, you need an engineer and you need a cement form worker. We need both to be successful in Australia. Um, <laughs> What you're, what you're talking about there, though, is almost heresy. That is losing the hierarchy, the class hierarchy that ranks us all and says these jobs are prestigious and important and therefore must get a lot of money and these jobs are, you know, any yeah, fool no, could do but, it. But, but I think it's actually worse than that, right? I really do think it's worse than that because we've got a government that pretends to be on the, fa on the side of the tradies, of, the, of TAFE, of apprenticeships, but they cut funding mm -hmm. to that and to punish universities for being elitist institutions that they've all been to and want their kids to go to, they cut funding to universities. It, it, it's just, it's, ju it's such a big lie about education because it does make the biggest uh, difference in the life of the individual, but it's also our ticket to success and prosperity as a nation. Mm. The countries that do well globally are countries that invest in research and development on on educating their people on productivity. Where does it come from? It comes from having a highly skilled, highly educated workforce. And it, it is so frustrating that this is portrayed as a kind of a, elitist obsession, you know, when it, it is the bedrock for our success as a nation. If we don't get education right, if we don't get healthcare right, if we don't get um, disability and age care right, if we don't get these things right, we cannot be successful as a nation. Hear, hear. <laughs> <And, coughs> I was talking to Tanya about this uh, in the green room and she probably has to be politic, but fortunately I don't. <laughs> um, I, what I do not understand is the logical um, contradiction between giving private schools literally billions of dollars, I believe by I can't remember the year now, but it's, it's 2029, somewhere around there. Private schools will be overfunded by $60 billion. Public schools will be underfunded by $6 billion. Mm. Quite apart from the unfairness and lack of justice of that, what are all these parents paying all this money for in fees, because the funding doesn't have any effect on how much the fees are, if they're just getting their kids to a point where they can go to an underfunded, tragically undermined totally um, uh, despised public university. I mean, well, what's the point? It doesn't make any sense to have these palaces of luxury for kids, fortunate kids that are funded by government, subsidised by government, and then where's the end game? An undermined and demoralised university sector. What the? Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I, I think... Uh, the real pro I'm not going to go into the whole um, the it's whole okay. school funding formula thing, but but what people should know is that the the funding formula that the federal government introduced means that pretty much every school in the Catholic and independent sector will meet its fair funding level as described by the Gonski formula. And 
almost no school in the public sector ever will. In pub no school, no, no public school will. Not the will. minimum there's, resource standard. There's a few exceptions because the ACT, anyway, you don't need to yeah. know the formula, but but that's just not fair. I don't begrudge anyone uh, school choice or a great education, good luck to them. What we can't have, if you want genuine choice, is an underfunded public system. You cannot. And also, if we're not going to end up in an oligarchy rather than a democracy ruled by the lucky few rather than by all of us, including merit not just popping up in nice middle-class households. But don't give me a microphone. You really shouldn't. I will use it. Um, but I'm going to shut up now because we have 15 minutes left and I'm sure many of you are dying to ask Tanya some questions. There's a hands up straight away. Do we have a roving mic or do we ask the people in the audience to just yell? Here comes the roving mic. Stand up so that the lady can see you and bring you the mic. By the way, do make them questions. Okay, I'm just, I can be a real bitch and if you don't ask a question, I will pull you up. Fair enough? We have a deal, audience? Oh, hang on. No, very short statement. No, we can't hear you. <laughs> I knew that was going to be the first question. I knew it would be a problem if I brought my mum with me today. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, the very last thing that the Australian public want to see is the Labor Party having an internal fight. I'm not going to be part of that ever. I'm not going to destabilise. Yeah. <laughs> okay, who's next? Uh, stand up if you this lady in the... F yes, you stand up so you can get the mic. Um, y y if Actually, if you want to ask a question, good idea to stand up and we'll get to you as quickly as we can. Yes. Yep. 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 You're a hundred percent right, um, and we'll we'll make that into a question for Jane's benefit by saying, "Don't you agree?" And then I can say, "Yes, I do agree very strongly." And. Uh, we introduced the National Quality Framework when we were last in government. We did it against uh, a lot of criticism from some of the private childcare sector operators who said it would put them out of business if they had to meet our national quality standards. Uh, but it, it is without question that quality... Uh, you Think about your own precious child. What... Uh, John Dewey, who invented the Dewey Decimal System, uh, said this thing that I always remember, what the best and wisest parent wants for his child, that's what society should want for all its mm, children. Absolutely. And I think that all the time, when I'm, when I'm developing education policy and in early childhood education in particular, you think about how much time you spend talking to and interacting with and cooing to that beautiful little new baby and your toddler, uh, that's what early childhood education and care should be. And it's such an opportunity to support parents who are at the most stressed time of their lives to, to um, gain confidence in their role in children's lives as well. And if we had free, universal childcare for every child, we could add, it's been estimated up to $20 billion to GDP. Why don't we do it? No, closer. We can't hear you, Ricky. I'm getting my revenge because you said that to me before. 
It's hold it right up to your mouth. Maybe that helps. Still not working. Um, in the meanwhile, can I take a photo of you as the audience because you've been so lovely? All right. There we go. Oh. You should do it like the Hillary Clinton one. No, don't. We know what happened to Hillary. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take that as a comment. <laughs> um, look, yeah. it, it has been a very difficult time for oppositions, not just the federal opposition, but for state oppositions too. You've seen that in state elections around the country. There is a very strong benefit to incumbency, but we will continue to hold two, two jobs. Hold the government to account for their failures, and they are particularly in... Um, vaccination, quarantine, uh, aged care, the stupid $70 million app, the COVID tracing app. Like, there's a bunch of things that uh, um, they've done in managing the pandemic, um, as you say, where they've cooked, cooked, kicked own goals. There's also a whole lot of other stuff that has been overshadowed by the pandemic, like the $30 million land purchase for a $3 million block of land. Mm. Like the fact that we are now in our eighth year of flatlining wages. Mm. Um, uh, the, so we'll continue to hold the government to account, but we will also, um, all of us, be part of laying out a more positive vision for Australia. Like this is one contribution, but uh, we will, you know, we've announced policies around um, electricity transmission, about one in 10 jobs going to apprentices on big government projects, about um, more affordable quality childcare, uh, um, electric vehicles. Uh, we'll keep talking about our positive agenda for Australia as well. You also get gagged all the time and Parliament. It's weird how you can't you get shut shut down. Uh, uh, we get we we try and <laughs> every time there's a um, urgency motion or something we get shut down. That's true, um, but but you know we've got a hostile media. We get gagged in the parliament, but but actually none of that matters. Uh, it's really important that we use all of the opportunities we have at times like this through social media is no is no good blaming what tony blair used to say um blaming the uh, oh complaining about the media is like complaining about the weather it makes you feel good briefly but it doesn't really change anything <laughs> so whatever the excuses are um they're just excuses it's our job to talk to people and to lay out a more positive vision, something that they can get on board with. <coughs> the lady with the microphone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, good. You can't gesture. If you gesture, that's all we get. Yes. 
Okay. Um, so I'd I'll, go with electric vehicles. I'll first. start with electric yeah. vehicles. Um, <laughs> yes, we've got a. You, you'll recall we took a very strong electric vehicles policy to the last election, and Scott Morrison accused us of wanting to steal the weekend, mm. des destroy the Australian weekend. Uh, we've we've already announced an electric vehicles um, uh, policy which would bring down the cost of electric vehicles. It makes no sense that uh, I think the UK has. I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it's probably just, just you know don't quote these numbers. But it's sort of 20 electric vehicles that cost less than forty thousand dollars, something like that, and we've got one or two. So we need to um, bring down the cost of electric vehicles and we also need to make sure that we've got a charging station infrastructure around the country and we've uh, announced um, policies around both of those things. Um, we're really hoping that we don't have another campaign against us about Labor stealing the weekend because that would be a bad thing to do. Uh, we wouldn't want to steal anybody's weekend. Um, on the other... Um, on the other issue, I can't, I can't comment on, on that because there is an active police investigation at the moment. What I will say is that um, uh, Brittany Higgins is a phenomenally courageous woman and um, I have, and many of us, have been uh, very careful to show her all the appropriate support that someone in such an awful position should receive. Um, we can't, of course, intervene in any sort of police or legal matter, but I think the public attention on her case has uh, meant that the I hope the police will take it very seriously and in investigate absolutely appropriately. Um, but it's not just, and Brittany Higgins would be the first person to say this, it's not just about her. Parliament House has to be a safe workplace for everyone who works there. And I've spoke to um, one of the senior public servants who's done one of the four reviews that the government commissioned last week about making sure that Parliament House is a safer workplace. But it's about every Australian workplace. So 40% of women or 39% of women say they were sexually harassed in the last five years at work. Uh, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, did a, a report with 55 recommendations that the government sat on for a year until they were embarrassed into looking at the um, recommendations again. They then publicly said they'd accepted all 55 recommendations until you read their written response where it's clear that they haven't accepted all of the 55 recommendations. A bunch of them just say noted. We need to make sure that every Australian workplace is safe and every Australian home is safe. We know that the biggest risk factor for being a victim uh, of violence in Australia today is being a woman and it's most likely to happen at home um, uh, and at the hand of someone who says they love you. Uh, sexual assault, one in five Australian women will experience sexual assault, or has experienced sexual assault um, over the age of 15. I think that's an understatement. We know that um, the legal systems are stacked against uh, um, victims of violence. In particular, sexual assault, about one in 10 reports, uh, one in 10 sexual assaults are reported to the police and of those, two or 3% make it to a guilty conviction. So we've got a lot of reform, systematic, big-scale reform that we need to do before we can say Australia is safe for women. We've actually gone backwards on international rankings for women's economic security and women's safety um, during the time of this government. And We've gone back a long way. We've, we've gone, gone back a long 15 way. 15 to around 50th or something. Yeah. And <coughs> And the reason I throw economic security into that is because women are safer and have more choice and freedom if they have a job and an ability to support themselves. Um, and if you have an environment where economic inequality between men and women grows, so too does the risk of violence. Mm. Absolutely. Here, here. It's the big terrifying issue and the recent statistics about the rate of sexual assault in aged care 
was extraordinary. Something like 50 in the reporting period, which was a month or something like that, had been reported sexual assaults in aged care. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Um, I'm sorry, but we do have a lady with a microphone up the back. And I think we're getting, are we getting towards our last question? Maybe two more questions. Okay, lady at the back. Hello. It's so nice to see you. Um, be- before Holly starts speaking, I should tell everyone that she is a very well-known performer and you are lucky to have her in your community. Friendship, Holly. So we, we have um, we have already made some announcements, like I was talking about with uh, uh, electric vehicles, and of course we have um, remained strongly committed to zero net emissions by 2050, and there'll be um, more announcements to go with that, and also our uh, transmission and storage announcements, community batteries and so on. Uh, there'll be more before the election. Um, can I say... Uh, I, uh, it, it's not f- it's not for me to sort of um, make up Tanya Plibersek's own um, policy, <laughs> but I um, I know f- from people like you, Holly, from my own kids, from uh, the young people in my electorate who are such strong advocates that the best thing we can do is listen to your generation and how much um, how much you get it. Uh, so I'll be, I'll be making sure inside the Labor Party that I stand up for strong action, not, not because I think it's something that we need to sacrifice to get right, but actually because it gives us such enormous opportunities as a country. And at the moment, we're turning our back on a whole lot of those opportunities. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm really very, very sorry. We are out of time. We'll have one more. Um, a, a very quick question. We will only have time for one more. I'm sorry if you missed out. Okay. Hi, Tanya. Welcome to our little town. My question, you sort of listed a whole litany of what, as a young girl, we are um, sounds like corruption. When are we ever going to have? You know, like, when, when will we ever have a proper corruption proof? Yeah. Um, if, if I had it my way, yesterday, and and not just the half-hearted. Uh, thing that the federal government have promised in 2018 and have yet not yet delivered a national integrity body, we need a strong, independent national integrity body. I 100% agree with you. And and if we are elected, we've committed to doing that. What a wonderful note to finish on. can we all join together to thank Tanya Plibersek oh, and, and Jane. Oh. Thank you. Oh. Thanks. 
And I think that standing ovation says it all, but not just for her wonderful contribution here today, not just for her wonderful book, but for all the work she has done for so many years oh, to try and make Australia a better, fairer country. Thanks, Jane, and thanks for your wonderful interview. Um, and I'll be downstairs signing, signing books. <laughs> so. Do buy the book. There's a lot of good stuff in it. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Storyfest Inc. And that's Inc. with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast.